Hello, and welcome back to More Capable, a robotics podcast. I'm Beth York. And I'm Shaw Flick, and today we're going to pick up right where we left off in episode one, which is the current state of robotics in human health. But before we do, let's recap the first episode. That's a great place to start. (laughs) First things first, robots are cool. Check. Absolutely. But the cool factor is just part of what sci-fi books and movies have done to shape how we think of robots. We've basically been conditioned to fear them because we really don't understand them. Pretty much everybody we spoke to said some variation on Hollywood has told a story about robotics that isn't very accurate. So we veered away from the word robots because it's such a charged and misleading concept and instead focused on the field of robotics. And the practical side of the field of robotics. Now that's really cool because we're talking about assistive technology that basically makes life more livable for humans. (laughs) Yeah, and not at all the dystopian humanoid robots of like Terminator or Blade Runner. (laughs) Right, because what did Colin Engel of iRobot say? Something about like, we have bigger problems to solve than figuring out how to make a robot with arms and legs that can balance. Yeah, it was something like that. Because, yeah, it's about solving real problems, not just making robotic versions of ourselves. And that's how we landed on healthcare robotics. I mean, of all the big problems out there, at our core, we're usually just trying to make sure humans get to live long and healthy lives. For sure. Now, if all that sounds intriguing but unfamiliar, definitely check out episode one or just keep listening. Whatever floats your boat. Either way, here we are, somewhere near the crossroads of human problems and robotic solutions, where we find ourselves in episode two of our three-part limited series, More Capable. Let's start with a quick definition of what we're talking about here. Awesome. So robotics and healthcare, usually categorized under the umbrella of med tech, essentially means robotic technology applied to the betterment of human health. So that's casting a really broad net. So we're, uh, we're going to focus in on a term that came up a lot in our interviews and discussions for this pod, assistive technology. Yeah, think about healthcare robotics less like a doctor with an iPad for a face, though they do exist, and more like anything around that's helping encourage the quality and longevity of human life. And to kick off our discussion, we spoke with Jody Holtzman of Longevity Venture Advisors. You know, robotics in general have been around for for a long time. I mean, wh- one of my favorite movies is uh, Hugo. Yeah, uh, I don't think I ever saw uh, this one, but it's interesting how much Hollywood influences how we talk about of, robots. Uh, 3D. We've now, for the last 20 years, you know, had them in our homes, whether it's a Roomba or other assistive, you know, devices. And like everything else has just continuously increased. I think at the core, the most important continuity piece, and this is directly relevant, I think, to robotics, is the need for human interaction. And so what is that blend and balance in different scenarios in which you see that? I personally don't believe, and I think, you know, uh, research and, and just reality has shown, people have no problem with robots right? Roombas have been, you know, sold for, for a long time. And there are those people, particularly if they live alone, you know, they, they interact with the Roomba, you know, like it's a cat or a dog. Uh, and luckily, they don't have to walk it. I'm definitely guilty of that. I have a Roomba and she's tricked out with all these Rosie the Robot stickers, you know, from the Jetsons for anyone <laughs> uninitiated. She's kind of like a pet or maybe a very helpful family member. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Good night, ma'am. Yep, yep, that's familiar. Ours is named Gus. And because of the happy sound he makes when he turns on, we like to imagine that he does like nerdy stand-up comedy at local open mic nights. So imagine this. Uh, a Roomba whirs out onto the stage. Oh, hey, you guys. Thanks for coming up to the coffee clutch tonight. I've got some uh, jokes for you. Yeah, and then he says, did you hear the one about the vacuum? <laughs> Never mind. It sucks. <laughs> that was my Gus impression with a really bad joke. <laughs> that was classic. That's classic. Absolutely. That's that's in Gus's repertoire. Uh, and you're right. It does suck. Um, but you see what I mean, right? He's like a fun, helpful part of our lives. 
Right. And that's like the key to being assistive, right? Helpful. But beyond cleaning our homes or mowing our lawns, which my neighbor has one of those auto lawnmower things, and honestly, I'm quite jealous. But beyond the convenience elements, there's so much robotics can do to make us healthier. Exactly. Or, you know, just generally help us live happier, better lives to help us be more capable of doing the things that make us human. Yeah, and speaking of Roombas, I had a chance to talk to Colin Engel, founder and CEO of iRobot, about these kinds of medical applications of robotics and why he's passionate about the possibilities. So Colin, let's start with why you do what you do. I'm happy talking about this industry that I love and uh, as many unique and wonderful and terrible elements to it, but it's kept me entertained for my entire life, the only job I've ever had. And I hope it continues for a long time into the future because there's a lot more cool stuff to build. If you were cryogenically frozen, what do you think? Do you think you would be saying, my eyesight is kind of bad, let me just replace it with this robotic eyeball. Do you really think that's real? Is that really gonna happen? I mean, I think that's completely real. You know, we're doing cochlear implants today for medical reasons. We're starting to go and be able to do optic nerve splicing so that blind people can see light and dark and and you know we actually have robot arms with neural interfaces this is all real stuff and it's it's awesome because it can help people who've had tremendous injuries or born with horrible challenges regain the ability to enjoy more fuller lives and that's awesome yeah my first exposure to really understanding robotic body parts was meeting hugh her my favorite hugh her story was I was, you know, he's giving a talk and he was like, I feel bad for you guys. See my legs next year? My legs are going to get better and your legs are going to get worse. <laughs> and I was like, yes, you know, it's, it's, that's the kind of attitude that drives this builder, optimistic, we can create a better future vision. Things will keep moving forward. So I, I absolutely do think that this is going to be part of our future. And and I've got a three-month-old son. He's going to have some pretty interesting conversations with me as he grows up uh, about some of this stuff. And I'm going to be like, I'm not sure what to say, son. (laughs) Yeah. You know, as a dad with little kids, I think about that a lot. Maybe he should just say something I heard him say on another podcast, something like, son, I wasn't successful in the field of robotics until I became a vacuum salesman. Oh my gosh, that is such a good quote. You know, it's so weird thinking about iRobot as a vacuum company since everything they do is so tied in with the future of assistive robotics. And honestly, it's hard imagining them as a gritty startup. But like we learned in the first episode, it took a while for them to have an idea that really stuck. Well, yeah. And when I'm looking at my Roomba... You mean Gus? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) When I'm looking at Gus, I see a really common household device that makes my life and the lives of lots of people around the world better. I don't necessarily see a robotics engineer or entrepreneur behind it struggling to keep his business viable. I got Colin talking about that too, really from the perspective of a businessman with a vision of helping people, which wasn't necessarily a vision of being a vacuum salesman. It's the rare entrepreneur who succeeds with their first idea. You know, I had a great mentor in life when I showed him my first business plan, which went out five years and predicted profitability down to the second decimal point. And he said, Colin, this is either ridiculously lucky or wrong. Let's see if we can get the next month right. And I was like, there's wisdom. Okay, here's a life lesson I'm gonna put in my, my, my pocket. and. You know, entrepreneurship is about pivoting. It's about being realistic with what's going on. And, you know, we went eight years without real investment. No one ever left. I never had money to make payroll at the beginning of the month, but we always made it. So maybe they, maybe they were right and I was wrong to worry, but we were driven by passion and we were a bunch of builders and we still are a bunch of builders. who are just excited by the opportunity to come to work each day and try to invent the future. Oof. Inventing the future. I like that a lot. 
I know, because when you think about it, we're only at the beginning of the robotics meets med tech meets better living process. First, we've had to become comfortable with machines to assist humans to do the things that are repetitive, difficult, or dangerous. You know, maybe that's uh, a good sort of historical starting point for how we've come to the healthcare piece. Robots doing the dangerous, repetitive stuff. So that is robots in manufacturing. Right. And you picture those big robotic arms that build cars and large machinery. That's task automation. Not exactly smart robotics, but predetermined programmed movements that make the process of building these things safer and easier. And yeah, we'll we'll come back to this part later, but early surgical robots like the Da Vinci, so the ones with multiple incision points, limited articulation, and a steep learning curve for surgeons, those to me look a lot like those robotic arms. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we use past models of success to shape our early attempts at things. Even the foundation of robotics used the human model at first, like Honda's humanoid robot, whose crowning achievement was kicking a soccer ball at President Obama. I'm asking a humanoid robot. It is a pleasure to meet you. Why does it exist? (laughs) We're not really sure, but it represents the old way of solving non-existent problems with robotics. It's novel and kind of cool. Exactly, but... Even things we look at and say aren't smart, like task automation or, quote-unquote, ones that serve no purpose, like that soccer bot, these are important steps in the process of robotic acceptance and the adoption of breakthrough robotic tech. As Colin explains, it starts with the robotic toolkit and how that toolkit expands. And that is done by robotics solving specific problems. And then it's adapted and it evolves the way we do things. And some of this is just proof of concept that we can justify further developments in the tech. Jody Holtzman spells it out for us. Once you had robotics at GM, you know, making cars and and the capital intensive, you know, character of that, then you started seeing something that looks similar in a surgical theater, you know, assisting with surgery. And so the sophistication, it's just a forward march that everybody should be expecting, you know, if not having that personal touch point with it. And so there you're actually trying to create demand by first having to demonstrate an outcome that's better than the status quo. And so, you you know, you've seen uh, robotic help with uh, drawing blood You know, it's not widely used, but, you know, you can hit the vein more accurately, reduces pain, this and that. Never have a doctor draw your blood. Always get a nurse or a technician who does it all the time. (laughs) Uh, It's a lesson I learned. You know, and if you can have a robot that can do it with even less discomfort, well, I don't think anybody would be upset with that. But here's where issues of cost come in. And, you know, I always say context is everything. And the context for accepting this level of technological intervention is shaped by the economic dynamics and the financial dynamics of the healthcare industry. Most hospitals cannot afford to have these uh, surgical robots. Uh, Most hospitals cannot afford to build the infrastructure of sensors that would simply allow for, uh, you know, robotic carts and things to move about the halls. And then they don't have the manpower to keep it running. That's an additional cost, etc. So on the cost side alone, it's limited to the biggest most financially secure. And so that's an obstacle to scale right there for the company, right? Which means that the unit price is gonna be higher as well, which, it, and so you, you, you have this loop of obstacle. And where that breakthrough is, I think is, is a ways away. But when you think about what are the different robotic solutions doing, As I said, some are addressing a real need and some of them are creating need. One of those needs right now is independence as we age. 
and Jody is a strategic advisor for Intuition Robotics, the creator of an assistive companion robot named LEQ that helps older adults live their best lives at home. LEQ is responding to a real need. And the research that has already been done, you know, has shown the effectiveness of this thing to reduce loneliness, to reduce a sense of isolation, to create more connection even with family, and to just bring a smile to somebody's face. It, it has physiological benefits. Yeah, you know, accepting the idea of robotics as assistive is one thing, but accepting an actual robot where you'd expect a human seems kind of tricky. But, I mean, ultimately, it's like a form factor issue, right? Yeah, and actually, Jody mentioned that the inspiration for the form factor of the LEQ robot was something that people responded to really well emotionally. The Pixar lamp. <laughs> really? Yeah, people love it. They find it comforting. And interestingly, it's from an old Pixar movie called Luxo Jr. I, I literally never heard of that. Well, that's because it was way back in 1986, and it's about anthropomorphic lamps. And the way Pixar is able to make them come to life... It's easy to forget it's about two lamps and not two people because the relationship is so deeply human. So by tapping that emotional realism to tell the story, you take a familiar form like a lamp, give it um, empathy, uh, understanding. And a sense um, of humor. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Human stuff. Yeah, human stuff. That all increases acceptance and adoption of that non-human proxy for care. And in elder care, that means more independence for longer, which is kind of that better living paradigm that we've been talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. Right? Yeah, I think it's so cool. And now this is where we connect the dots of robots helping us be not only more capable, but more human, which brings us to surgical innovation to improve health, wellness, and humanity. So putting robots in the hands of surgeons isn't an entirely new concept, uh, there's a whole history behind it. And we asked surgical expert and chief medical officer of Vicarious Surgical, Dr. Barry Green, to share a little bit of that history of surgical methods with us. Surgical innovation really began in the late 1860s with the advent of anesthesia. It took another great leap in the early 1900s with the development of antibiotics. So. The surgical innovation and designing new operations was really blossoming from the 1930s until the 1990s. But then with the advent of laparoscopic surgery, surgeons then had to focus their attention on learning the technology. And really the new operations since 1990 have been very, very few. Minimally invasive surgery, the idea is to do surgery inside the belly or inside the chest through a small incision. And that relieves the patient of the pain and suffering from a large incision. Up until 1989, all major operations in the belly and in the chest were done through large incisions, which took weeks to heal and had complications all on their own. And the stress on the body was tremendous. Minimally invasive surgery began with the development for the space shuttle of a small camera that we have now on our cell phones. But as that camera was used through a telescope placed into the belly or into the chest, surgeons were able to do much bigger operations and send the patient home in a day. Now we, we take a, a portion of someone's stomach out and send them home in the afternoon from the operation and just have them drink a liquid diet. So the limitations of this operative experience for the surgeon was to learn how to operate almost backwards because the motions are opposite inside the abdomen than outside and the visualization was not controlled by the surgeon until the first robot came out in the year 2000. Up until 2000, all a surgeon could do was to tell someone else to move the camera so they could see. So it made it very difficult to operate, almost like driving down the highway and having your passenger 
show you a television screen of what they're seeing. If they get distracted and look to the side, you don't even see what's in front of you anymore. So it became very challenging and for many surgeons it was frustrating. So it, it really delayed the acceptance of minimally invasive surgery. Yeah, there are definitely challenges and complications for open surgery. And um, though the promises of robotic surgery are super great, so far they've kind of fallen short. Now, it's some of that might be just ease of use or training or, you know, the cost of these things. And of course, once you get good at something and everything changes, so you have surgeons who are having good outcomes, they're excellent at a procedure, but maybe it could be a tiny bit better, a little bit better, a lot better, easier with a robot. Yeah, but then they have to learn how to use it. So the hospital has to buy it, maintain it, et cetera, et cetera. So as good as the patient outcomes can be, if it's expensive and difficult to use, uh, it's hard to adopt. And subsequently, like adoption is exceptionally low. It's like 3% maybe. And we asked Dr. Green why. The limitations of current robotic surgery really began with the design of that robot. That was a, a legacy robot designed in the 50s and it was beautifully adopted to the operating room in the late 90s, and it came out in the year 2000, and it has been made better over time, but still it's unbelievably expensive. It cannot be moved from room to room. It has to have a dedicated room, difficult to bring to the patient's side. It covers the patient over completely so that another surgeon or surgical assistant has a very difficult time helping with, with those operations. And very importantly, with the current robot that goes through multiple incisions in the abdomen, it can only work in one quadrant of the abdomen or the chest at a time. And so the design of the vicarious robot allows the surgeon to go in through any incision and operate in any quadrant of the belly with just as much ease as any other quadrant, even backwards. So it sounds like progress is being made on how the robotic device moves and more broadly to just improve the uh, surgeon's experience. Exactly. That makes the barrier for entry more reasonable for surgeons to use the tech. And letting them focus on what they're highly trained to do. Yep. Plus the device itself, um, it looks pretty cool. I totally agree. It's like a tiny Johnny Five from Short Circuit. I just want to pet him. <laughs> but beyond being cute or cool looking, technology like this sets its sights on creating better patient outcomes, involving less training and being more accessible and intuitive. These are the cornerstones of ethical product development in the med tech space. Ethics. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's probably the most important element other than the tech itself. Yeah, right. And ethics are intrinsically linked to patient care. You know, take, for example, the Hippocratic Oath, right? But when it comes to innovation, that direct link to ethics doesn't necessarily exist, at least in the same way, in part due to, you know, the financials. The money. That's right. <laughs> the money. And in the healthcare system, it's more about aligning positive patient outcomes with a financial benefit. Yeah, and that balancing act can be tricky for engineers and entrepreneurs in this space. Now, we were lucky enough to speak with Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks, which, if you haven't checked it out, is an awesome medtech podcast available wherever you get your content. And Tom helped us understand how this plays out in really pragmatic terms. I think the modern landscape of, of surgery today is, is changing rapidly. I mean, we are seeing new devices come into the operating room there's certainly things like robotics that will help surgeons do their job better and someday do it remotely. There are other materials, biomaterials that can be used to replace cartilage and things. So we're seeing a great convergence of technology coming into the OR and making healthcare a lot better. The, the challenge for all of these companies and what's evolved over the past 20 years at least is that there needs to be a financial justification for any new tech that comes in. It used to be that you know, if you had a scalpel that cut things, you could say, well, this one does it better. And that was all you needed to do to get the hospital to buy it. Now you need to explain to the hospital why that new device will save the money 
Maybe it's shortening OR time. Maybe it's diminishing infections. Everything has to have a financial benefit to it. So while there is all this great new technology coming into surgery, like it has in other industries, the, the thing that's unique about healthcare is that everything that comes in really has to prove its financial metal. It needs to really demonstrate that it's not only going to save lives, it's going to save dollars. So that is sort of what new technology coming into the OR is bumping up against. The healthcare system needs to find a way to align those ethics. So I think there needs to be a way, and I think there increasingly is a way to align better performance of a device with expenses. If, if a hospital is given a, a set payment for a patient who's receiving bypass surgery, they're paid whatever tens of thousands of dollars, it's in that hospital's best interest to make sure that that surgery goes well, that there's fewer infections, that the patient is out of the hospital as quickly as they can be because it's just safer to be at, at home generally with infections that are going around the hospital. So I think there is an alignment between better care and better economics. There just needs to, going forward, I think we need to make sure that that alignment stays in place. And, and I, I wouldn't want to suggest that there's a hospital that wouldn't try to save a life if it cost them money. It certainly would. I just think when it comes to adopting new technologies that aren't yet proven to save lives or, or improve health more effectively, that there's a, a, a higher barrier to entry and that barrier to entry is proving to the hospital that at least you're not going to add to costs. So at least you're not going to be more expensive because at the end of the day, the hospitals do need to be able to be financially stable. So that seems to be a kind of critical convergence point for financial challenges and emerging tech in general. Like we've talked about already, uh, when components become cheaper, a whole new world of technology and access opens up. And not to mention computational power, right? We've mentioned Moore's law already, but with developments in AI and the ability for computers to process and make sense of huge data sets, we're finding ourselves in a world where powerful computing is possible and relatively inexpensive. Exactly. And I immediately thought of emerging 5G capabilities and something a friend of ours said on a different podcast we produced. You remember Joshua Ness from Verizon 5G Labs, right? Yeah, we talked with him about access and equity on the podcast on the Tech Trail earlier this year. Yeah, and he had a lot to say about how this technology impacts and maybe even transforms healthcare. In healthcare specifically, there's a few different ways that we can anticipate 5G is going to be transformative. Now, of course, because this is a nascent technology, it's hard to make predictions or I can prognosticate all I want to, but it's going to play out in the labs of the people who are inventing these technologies. What we try to do is work with some of those people as well as with some of the healthcare providers who are gonna be using that technology and see if we can start sussing out trends and then creating uh, the potential or creating space for solutions to develop. And there, there are a, a few categories. And one of course is the one that everyone likes to talk about which is robotic surgery. The idea that a doctor in one place can be operating on a patient that's in some place completely different who is undergoing surgery being performed by a robot that's controlled by the doctor, right? And all this being done remotely. Um, and this is a use case that highlights all, all of the great benefits of 5G, the large throughput, the high volume of data, as well as the low latency and the consistency of latency, right? Because it's not necessarily just super low latency. That latency has to be consistent without having any sort of spikes or lags in order for things like robotic surgery to be successful. And, and that's the one that a lot of people like to talk about. You know, honestly, Beth, uh, the first thing that comes into my mind when I think of 5G is my phone and hopefully getting better signal around my house. But I, I mean, it's so much more than that, right? It is, but I want good service at my house too. But <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea of surgeon from anywhere, like literally anywhere could use his or her skills to help patients in a totally different location without all the tech glitches we've come to expect. And, you know, like things like team meetings and uh, Zoom calls. Uh, well, uh, Beth? Beth, I'm sorry, Beth. Did you say something? I uh, I think you're on mute. <laughs> I've done that so many times. <laughs> nice try, Shaw. <laughs> but seriously, medicine has already been transformed by the non-5G technology available today. And it's just cool imagining how it'll get even better and more accessible in the near future thanks to 5G's impact on telepresence. Hmm. Telepresence. That sounds uh, futuristic. Well, it is, and it isn't. On the one hand, doctors and patients use it all the time today. Heck, 
We're doing it right now recording this pod. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. I'm in Oregon. You're in Boston. I just hadn't really thought about it in such sort of fancy sounding terms. So I work remotely. So this is kind of like my life. I mean, I'm thinking about all the non-work things from the last year that would ordinarily have been done in person, like meeting with a financial advisor or even seeing a doctor that we did online because of the availability of this technology, telehealth and stuff like that. Right. And according to Debbie Theobald, CEO of Vecna Technologies, expanding telepresence will have far-reaching implications beyond Zoom and Teams. Telepresence is the ability to have, you know, one person in one location who's able to see, hear, and interact with people or an environment that is some distance away. The benefits of this are that one person can jump from being a participant in widespread locations nearly instantaneously. So this is important for scarce resources, um, which is now beginning to include behavioral social or mental health professionals. And then a slight twist on this scenario is the use case could be that a single person can be in multiple disparate locations at once. And so this is a benefit during the pandemic that's continuing to grow where there were not enough staff to cover all of the locations which may fluctuate in volume in healthcare. So healthcare organizations are now creating like centralized staff, whether they're registrars or clinical or other types of resources and having them cover different support areas via the robot where they're most needed at the time. So telepresence can be a Zoom session to a full-blown, you know, robotic avatar a la Bruce Willis in one of his lesser known films, Surrogate. I'm not sure if anybody's seen that. But this range is based on the ability to interact with the environment for a, you know, better or worse, uh, immersive experience. So Zoom is pretty limited. We're all very familiar with, you know, Teams, Zoom, WebEx, whatever. And you need someone to let you in and they can control what you see and hear. Um, so you may get a better experience with some virtual reality products. You know, you put on the headset and you can move around and see, but those tools are currently applied to non-real-time or virtual environments at this time. So you can move around a pre-recorded plaza in Italy or a video game by, you know, looking around and moving your head. But with a mobile device, either table-mounted swivel camera or a drivable robot, you can enter into a space without assistance. You can move the camera and the robot to see things that are of interest to you. And you can hear and speak in real time to those around you and interact as an entity. And the next level of this is to be able to manipulate that environment as you would if you were there. You can like open the door, you can look in the fridge, take out a drink, hang out with your friends. <laughs> and these capabilities all exist in the robotics world in some form or fashion a manipulative device or a sensing device and all of these things, but we're still working on putting all of the available technology together on a workable platform uh, and at a price point that the market can stomach. So you can see how immersive technology and telepresence are really tied together and that cost is a major driver of adoption, both on an individual level and at the hospital facility. Well, that makes sense to me. Uh, you know, new technologies like VR seem to be more accessible than ever. I've I've even seen ads for virtual courtside basketball experiences to live NBA games. Now, I know that that's not exactly a litmus test for accessibility, but it does assume that the number of people who have VR-ready devices are going to, it's going to outweigh whatever it costs to set up that kind of fan experience. Yeah, it's really cool. I've seen that. And it definitely says a lot about VR's mainstream adoption. But I think it's important to make one distinction here. We're talking about a passive experience, you know, like a fan who can probably turn their head, but they can't stand up or otherwise immerse themselves in the courtside experience. I think it's just another way to watch a game, you know, rather than <laughs> do anything in particular. Yeah, right. You know, I think I look at it and I think, oh, I can catch the game with my old roommate, you know, who's halfway around the globe. But the key distinction is that the robotic surgery experience would be fully immersive, like a flight simulator, you know, but you're actually like in control of a physical thing. Oh, okay. So like more like VR and video games. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I think this is where it gets really interesting because VR typically means interacting virtually in a non-real space. So doing real things, but in a place that really doesn't exist. But the basketball game, like inside of a patient, is a very real space. So maybe more like AR, since you're interacting with real things? Sorry, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this because isn't augmented reality more like adding an interactive layer to real things? So we're in Google Glasses or using an app that shows you the reviews of a restaurant that you're like pointing your phone at. So what do we call it when we do something virtually in a real space with real consequences? Beth, I'm, I think I'm starting to spin on the like, what is real? Is this all a simulation again? <laughs> okay. All right. Deep breaths. Deep breath, Shaw. All right. There you go. Yes. Right. Yes. Thank you. Okay. It's a little like both, but maybe more like AR. And not necessarily in the consumer tech Pokemon Go way, but that's a better way to think about it since the world you're working in is real reality. Huh. Yeah, I could see the practical applications there. And, you know, Beth, thank you for helping me understand that because it's a lot to take in. So I, I can see VR being used to like train someone on surgical techniques, stuff like that. But I wonder if playing Pokemon Go, even though it's not a, a obviously not a substitution for actual surgical training, if doing that gets you like more comfortable with the technology of, you know, interacting with surgical robotics. You know, yeah, and I can say as being the resident expert on the kids these days, I can say age or generation has as much to do with acceptance and adoption of both passive and active virtual experiences. And to back that up, just, you know, so I don't sound like somebody's mom talking about things she's overheard, you know, from nearby teens. Assistant Professor of Robotics Engineering and Director of the Human-Inspired Robotics Lab at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, Jane Lee spoke with us about how the future of healthcare leans on existing experience with emerging technologies. A lot of younger nursing students, they are the younger generation. They're familiar with gaming interface, they're familiar with all the smartphone interfaces, a lot of virtual reality interfaces. So when they find out what they are familiar with, uh, actually is being used as the research platform. They feel very much encouraged <laughs> from the patient to nursing educators, uh, to nursing student. You'll find out how much passion they have uh, to shape the future of technology and shape the future of work. I, I think if, if more nurse, nurses have kind of ownership in the nursing robot technology, uh, they will be able to work better uh, with their robot assistant, robot supporters. Uh, we hope to forge research and educational and professional training collaborations with people from the work domain. So, for example, we would like to invite faculty, nursing faculty and nursing students to come to join our research seminars and professional training sessions and play with the robotic technology we developed and talk about uh, how they feel and what kind of improvement we can make um, to make it more usable, particularly in the field. So the golden standard is simple, is if you can control the robot as your own body, that is the ideal situation. So a lot of the interface design comes from the understanding of the natural behavior and preference of human motor control. So, for example, we have a mobile telepresence robot with a camera that can look around. So, how are you going to develop the motion of the robot or autonomy to control the cameras such that human feels comfortable to use it or interface for the same purpose? And it's that connection between human body and the device it's interacting with that helps make the experience more real. You know, that reminds me of the haptic suit that players wear in Ready Player One. Right, right. And that's just a full body extension of the haptics we've had in our lives for decades. Like how a gaming controller vibrates when something happens to your character. Oh, yeah, like the rumble pack for Nintendo 64. Or even the haptic touch on most smartphones. It enhances the experience and makes it less abstract, more intuitive and real. And to get a sense of what that means to healthcare specifically, we had the absolute privilege of talking with the robotics engineering department head at WPI and haptics expert, Jing Xiao. Here's how she explained it to us. 
So haptics is about adding the sensation of touch to a user interacting with virtual or remote environments. So for interaction with remote environments is usually for highly operating robotic systems. And that usually, the interface usually involves visual sensation, as we all know, through a video, through camera. So haptics uh, provides a user an additional sensation of touch and contact through a haptic device when the user manipulates objects in a virtual scene or remote scene through a virtual medium. Haptics plays an important role in virtual surgical training uh, as far as healthcare is concerned by providing force feedback when the virtual surgical tool and tissue interacts. In robot-assisted telesurgery uh, system, adding force and touch feedback to the surgeon remotely operating on the patient can enhance the surgeon's situational awareness and provide more accurate information. As you know, the Da Vinci system is the very the most popular telesurgical system. Uh, so the surgeon is usually provided this fantastic sterile visual uh, environment, but there's no sense of touch. So it's all visual. There's attempt, and I'm, I'm sure in integrated surgical areas, also attempting to add more haptic sensation, haptic feedback to enhance the surgeon's understanding and the judgment of the situation in the operating room. That is so cool. You could use sensors and haptic feedback to actually feel something the robotic device is doing. Yeah, exactly. So life or prolonging life starts to imitate art. Well, you know, video games anyway. Uh, well, Beth, if you've seen any of the video games that have come out in the last few years, it's definitely art. But I like the word imitation because speaking of imitations, which just to be clear, I'm not using it in a negative way at all. I mentioned earlier how the first-generation surgical robots looked more like the manufacturing robots that predated it than the kind of more recent devices we've been talking about. Yeah, the Da Vinci. Right, the Da Vinci. Well, with all this talk of evolving technology, it only seems right to jump back into the specific device that's captured our imagination on this pod, the vicarious surgical device, which I don't know if you know this, Beth, but that's the first device of its kind with FDA breakthrough status. So to me, it really does seem to represent where surgical robotics is headed. Yeah, exactly. So when we're thinking about that future of surgical robotics, we have to look to the past the evolution through game-changing devices like the Da Vinci. And we've already heard from Dr. Barry Green about the history of surgical procedures, so who better to talk us through a brief history of surgical robotics than Vicarious Surgical co-founder and CEO, Adam Sachs. So, so the first big player was, you know, Intuitive Surgical. Uh, you know, they're, 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 I'd say, the first big corporate player. There's, you know, Computer Motion, which ended up part of Intuitive, as well as SRI, which developed a lot of that original technology. Uh, all three have kind of come into the, the same platform today. And this, this really, it was architected in the late 80s, early 90s. And when it was architected, it was incredible. I mean, this was the cutting edge of, of really industrial robotics applied to surgery uh, in, in a, a capacity that surgeons could actually use in operating rooms. That being said, you know, we've ended up with a huge evolution in technology over the last three decades, and robotic technology and robotic devices have moved far past these original large industrial robots that were the original architecture of surgical robots. And to pick up on that story of the evolution of surgical robotics, specifically through the eyes of the founders of Vicarious Surgical, we want to tease out what makes the Vicarious Surgical device better or at least more of an improvement on patient outcomes and surgeon experiences to make it worth the evolutionary jump. So we asked Adam's business partner and the chief technology officer at Vicarious, Sammy Khalifa, to tell us the story of what inspired them to develop and build this next generation of devices. The original genesis of Vicarious Surgical was way back in about 2009, where Dr. Barry Green uh, who was a longtime family friend of Adam's family, came to Adam with, with an idea. And the idea back then was actually very different than it is today. 
back then it was a, uh, a surgical laparoscopic scaffold. You can imagine it's this, this folding device that you insert you know, into the patient through an incision and it opens up and you use it to hold organs out of the way. Very different than the robots that we have today, but it you know, was solving a need which is you know, when you're trying to operate on a specific organ inside your abdomen, there's a lot of other organs that can get in the way. We added a lot of things to the scaffolding. We added lights, we added, you know, maybe you want to have an auxiliary camera on it. You know, uh, a lot of these things were conceptual things that we didn't actually make other than the scaffolding itself. You know, when we were, when we were making the um, patent to describe this, we, we kept, you know, hammering in as many things as we can, right? Because that's what you try to do when you have a patent is try to expand the, the idea, the invention as much as you can. Uh, and pretty soon we had this, these actuators on the scaffold. We, you know, maybe you want to be able to move the organs around. You know, it kind of became this this uh, everything in the kitchen sink kind of idea. Uh, but the, the scaffolding itself was still a pretty solid idea. By about 2011, 2012, Oculus Rift had their Kickstarter, and that's actually really when the vision for this company kind of kind of happened. Where once we saw that, things just clicked. So it came from the you know this like everything in the kitchen sink kind of idea to a much simpler idea where you're gonna you're gonna put on a virtual reality headset, you're gonna have hand controllers in your in your hands, and you're gonna control a, a very simple robot, right? And pretty soon the scaffolding, a lot of the other things kind of fell by the wayside. And, and this vision of miniaturizing the surgeon and placing them inside the patient is really what took hold. In, in 2014, you know, we were all happened to be in Massachusetts. We all met up in, down in Westport, and we were walking along the beach. Uh, it was, you know, uh, a, a silly kind of sounding story, but it was really, it just sticks in my memory where we're walking down the beach talking about what this could be because, you know, Adam at that time had brought this prototype to a point where we had a, a single robotic arm that you you know would track the human's arm and would mimic what they were doing, and we actually used it to you know throw this little paper ball, and it you know the three of us were just in awe with you know not only did we have this vision, but we now had a prototype that was kind of demonstrating it, and we we're starting to like dream and fathom about what we could do with this. You know, it's it's always really easy to stick with what you already know. Again, Vicarious Surgical's Adam Sachs. To stick with a platform and architecture that is printing money incredibly effectively, that is operating on patients incredibly effectively, that is, is you know, helping surgeons and hospitals. But it's also, it's really important to look at the limitations as well and to take a step back, look from the outside in and say, you know, why have surgical robotics only hit 3% adoption over 20 plus years on the market? And when you do that, you, you start to really understand that it's, it's fundamental architectural limitations that have boxed surgical robotics in to fairly niche applications in specific markets in specific areas. And in order to take a step back, in order to, to broaden that, we actually need to rethink the fundamental architecture in a way that allows us to be no longer confined to the same even actuator types. That allows us to rethink how the actuators themselves work, how that leads to different architectures, and how that can lead to better adoption and better quality of patient care, better experience for the surgeon and, and, and for the hospital. You know, the, the goal really was to miniaturize a surgeon and place them inside the patient. And what that really does is it makes it much easier to perform surgery. Again, that's Sammy Khalifa. So laparoscopic surgery today, you know, you, you use these long slender instruments, they have to go through uh, an incision point, they have to pivot about that incision point. So basically, if you move right, the instrument moves left, and you move up, it moves down. You might be viewing it from an angle that is you know, not natural, and you have to do all of these conversions in your head to actually do what you're trying to do inside the patient. It's, it's a very unnatural mode of, of operating that requires a lot of, you know, not just initial practice and, and upkeep, but, but it, it requires the, the surgeon to constantly practice to, to maintain proficiency, to maintain their abilities there. And that's really the vision with our system is that you don't need that. Because if, if it is just as natural as you know, reaching out and grabbing something, you don't need to practice and you can improve the quality of surgery. 
So some of the things that differentiate us from our competitors from a technological standpoint, you know, the, the biggest thing I would say is actually the way we do our robotics. So at, at a high level, if you look at it to start with, we do most of our motion, most of our actual robotic movements inside the patient. Uh, whereas if you look at our competitors, most of them do a lot of that motion externally. And so what that actually means is that, you know, to do those motions externally, they're much larger motions, you're moving bigger things faster, and all that, you know, that translates to a stiffer robot, a larger robot, a more powerful robot. All of those things cost money, they're big, imposing, scary to some degree, whereas if with our device, because the robotics are small and inside the patient, the device that's actually driving that can also be small. And so from, from that perspective, like just fundamentally, it's, it's a very different beast than uh, you know, a lot of the other systems that exist. Diving one level deeper, the way we actually perform the uh, motion inside the patient is very distinct and very different than uh, a lot of other systems out there. Most systems rely on you know, steel cables with pulleys and complicated mechanisms. Our device actually is very simple. If you look at the insides of it, we, we you know, rely on polymer cables, guided surfaces on the inside. We have closed loop control, uh, as in we actually measure the position of every joint of our device inside. And all of this translates to a simpler device that actually has more degrees of freedom, more capability inside the patient than any other system out there. What, what really inspires me is, is, is that like, we have created something that is that easy to use, right? It's, it's just like, you don't really have to think about what you're doing. The surgeon can, can literally just, like I said, can just reach out, grab something. You know, if they want to throw a suture and, and close something, close a wound up inside the patient, they can do that just as easily with our robot as they can with their own hands. And, and that's something that not a lot of other companies with their products can, can claim. To me, that is, that is what we're striving for, and that is really what inspires you know, me to constantly push the envelope here. I never thought that I would create something that would truly change the way thousands of people uh, do something, and, and it will affect eventually, hopefully, millions of people's lives. Um, and, that, and that's something that has really motivated me. Wow, you know, the curiosity and optimism and drive is so inspiring, and you know, the acceleration of innovation in recent years, you know, heck, months has been so profound. And all of the related tech that has evolved in the Roboticist Toolkit has led us to this very exciting moment. Yeah, this whole combination of past, present, and yes, future, makes the evolution of robotic-assisted surgery and the vicarious surgical story so interesting to us. Right, you know, right. After talking with Adam, Sammy, and Dr. Green, it definitely feels like in the next 5, 10, 20 years, we're going to see robotics having less of an anecdotal impact. Yeah, yeah, and that... Whoa, look at this cool new tech effect, right? Right, and going beyond just the convenience-related robots like the Roomba or a lawn-mowing robot, it sounds like, I don't know, we're going to see big developments in the relationship between humans and robotics, like big, meaningful shifts. And personally, I'm pretty excited to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, especially as we're getting older. Thanks for the reminder, Shaw. <laughs> Give it a rest, Beth. <laughs> you just said the future is going to be awesome. And you know what? It's that awesome future of robotics that we're going to dig into on the next episode of More Capable. I can't wait. So until next time, I'm Shaw Flick. And I'm Beth York. And thanks for spending the time with us here on More Capable. More Capable.